Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry podcast. I'd like to start by welcoming you all back. Uh, some of you know we took a brief hiatus this summer, and we will start dropping podcasts every Thursday uh, from here on in through the end of the year. Uh, we appreciate you being patient with us during the break. And I'm excited to announce that today we have a very special edition of the podcast bringing us back. Uh, first of all, you'll be hearing from my colleague and regular co-host, Jim Weiss, also the founder and chairman of Real Chemistry. And he will be joined by global practice leader of executive communications and former reporter in healthcare, Mike Huckman. And then the really exciting news is they will be interviewing Sue Desmond Hellman. I think if you have been in healthcare for even a minute, you've heard her name before. She's a board member of National Resilience and Stand Up to Cancer. She served as the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is a very well-known foundation. She was the first female and ninth overall chancellor at UCSF, where she still remains as an adjunct professor. And then probably even most important, she is a member of President Biden's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Uh, she's also worked at a number of places, including Genentech, BMS. She's currently on the board of Pfizer and just a genuinely smart and lovely person. And during the conversation today, there's too many topics for me to cover, but you'll hear a little bit about her work on the uh, President Biden's council. Uh, they'll talk about the government recently announcing the first time medicines to be subject to the IRA. We will talk a little bit about COVID, what the new mutations look like, getting your flu shot, public health, and then we'll dip into oncology and sort of what's new and different there. So with that, I hope you uh, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, you sit down and get ready to listen to a very special conversation. So look, I wanted to start, you know, Mike, thanks for joining today um, as well. It's great to have us all back together. You know, I think this is our first hangout since COVID and it's weird because we should be live then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Except someone called me today saying they had COVID and had to cancel a meeting. So it's it's definitely seemingly back in our in our reality a little bit right now. So I was wondering about that, Sue, from your perspective, you know, can we really afford to let our guard down when it comes to infectious disease of any type or kind? That is um, a, a clear no. We can't uh, let our guard down. I, I do think that the reemergence of COVID that we're seeing a little bit more towards the end of August the bad news is we're seeing once again these mutations and these new forms of COVID, and many people have waning immunity from either uh, themselves having COVID or having had a vaccine. The good news is the plans are uh, in place for mid-September vaccination for the most vulnerable, and so I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we now have tools. We have vaccines. We have treatments, and um, we know what to do. So uh, I do think that there's no reason to panic, 
but also I, I've been telling people, think about your own risks, make sure you're vaccinated, um, you know, think about where you fit in with uh, vaccinations and don't forget flu, which we seem right. to be very complacent about. Uh, so I do think that that the best news is that we have the tools. Right. So I, I guess the message is go get your flu shot soon, right? Normally it's yes. this time of year. And then on top of that, I guess we've got in, and I'd heard this same advice around the mid-September timeframe, the new um, mutation uh, vaccines will be available and, you know, get out and get those as well. Yeah, I think, you know, there'll be some guidelines about who should get the vaccine. So it's important to to uh, look at the guidelines because the uh, vaccination experts spent a lot of time making sure they they hit the sweet spot there. But we all know kids going back to school, weather getting colder and everybody goes indoors, any respiratory um, past virus is most active uh, under those conditions. So in full disclosure, Sue, everybody knows or should know that you're on the board of directors of Pfizer. But as a former global public health advocate, as the CEO of the Gates Foundation, how concerned are you by the forecast that when this new booster is made available and given the current situation that you just talked about, that more than a small percentage of people are actually going to get the booster? And what do you think could or should be done to get those numbers higher? Well, the, I am concerned. Even before I was on the board of Pfizer, I don't know a person more pro-vaccine than I am. And one of the wonderful things in my career is seeing uh, the first vaccine that's an anti-cancer vaccine with human papillomavirus preventing uh, cervical cancer. Vaccines are a beautiful thing, they're prevention. And so the a couple things on the what needs to be done. The clinical community needs to be really clear with their patients about what they're worried about and how to take action. Because if you're over 65, you really need to be vaccinated and boosted. In the broader world, I think those of us who care about public health and global health can't be afraid of bullies who, if there's one side effect, if there's any story they've heard that's bad about vaccines or masks, we have to be data-driven and scientific and give people information that can help them and help their families. And so what I would love to see, there was a, a sort of a famous episode when I worked at Gates Foundation of uh, one of the governors in Nigeria and his son getting a polio vaccine over and over again on TV. <laughs> Just like they were the most vaccinated uh, some I've ever seen. There's nothing better than demonstrating that you're getting the vaccine. That So I think our political leaders, I think our religious leaders, our community leaders should lead the way. Um, because people follow where they see leadership. And I think this is a matter of leadership. We don't want people to have a vaccine-preventable disease. That makes no sense. And my most important hope is that we still get good coverage because the hardest thing about these vaccines is keeping up with the variants. You know, you want the, to cover as many of the variants as possible. It looks like we're okay by September, and I hope we'll be okay in October and November. And that's typical. That's been going on in flu forever, right? I mean, that same issue. Absolutely. Yeah. We look at the Southern Hemisphere to try and predict the vaccines we need for the Northern Hemisphere, and we're not always right. 
But I have to say that the other thing that is the politics of this is it, flu is such a good example. The vaccine doesn't have to be perfect to make a big dent. And when I say make a big dent, I mean decrease suffering, decrease days away from work, decrease hospitalizations, and decrease deaths in people who are the most vulnerable. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I, you know, you while we're on the topic of vaccines, and I know you know, and people vulnerable could be people with cancer. So combining those two thoughts and your experience, what do you think about the mRNA vaccines and what's coming, you know, what's been announced? It seems like an exciting moment. We're on the dawn. You know, there was an announcement yesterday or this week anyway, about the cancer vaccine. Or do you think we're going to finally really see that become reality? You know, if you, if you look, so one thing that I was noting this year is that it's now 25 years since Herceptin was approved. Yeah, we are going to talk about that. So, in yeah. many ways, <laughs> when you look at that milestone and you go forward, so what did we learn? We learned that a serious um, solid tumor that had spread could be uh, helped by what we call a naked antibody, an antibody that didn't even have a payload, no chemotherapy, no radiotherapy, just an antibody. That teaches us that your immune system is powerful. So if you say, okay, now there's immunotherapy, CAR T cells, for me, it's inevitable we would want to use an mRNA vaccine or any other vaccine that we can, um, we can teach that vaccine what the immune messages, because that's what mRNA does. It's the M stands for message. So I always think about, well, take the message of like, turn up those immune cells that are going to kill the cancer or turn down those immune cells that are preventing the body from clearing the cancer. What a beautiful thing. I mean, and the more we have these kinds of weapons, not as we found out, not every cancer is the same. Not everyone will benefit. There's toxicities to the most powerful therapies. But I'm, I could not be more excited about the, the path that cancer therapy is taking. And the, the secret sauce is get really, really smart about the science and then utilize that to the patient's benefit. That, that's a great thing. Well, when I do work, so the tissue is the issue. We often talk about that. Um, is that becoming, you know, more of a well-accepted notion and that people, I mean, I just took the gallery test, you know, I wanted to know from Grail, you know, there's a lot of controversy over them, not sure where you stand on it. But, you know, as one of my physician friends says, there's more diagnostic companies than there will ever be therapeutics companies, you know, to address all the diagnostics. But what do you think of that molecular diagnostic revolution and what it means for us? Should we all know our numbers? Possibly, but I have some hesitation about that. So as we sit here today, if you say right patient, right therapy at the right time, count me in. Someone who has been diagnosed with any cancer should have a molecular analysis. I don't know. I can't think of one where that wouldn't apply. So you say, what? let's teach ourselves about that cancer so we can Because it still does not always happen, right? It, it, it still does not always happen. And, and look, it's not just that you have to overcome 
a lot of inertia of, okay, they have cancer, you get along with the treatment. But it's also, to be fair, and we learned this with uh, her subtest. If you went to medical school 30 years ago and some smarty pants from Genentech comes in your office and says her subtest, you're like, oh, okay, I got I to gotta learn something new. I got to, you know, think like a molecular biologist. None of that is easy and people are busy. So I'm, I'm actually very sympathetic to how hard that is to keep up with all that. But it's essential. And it is essential that physicians and, and caregivers understand this and use it. Here's where I think it's, it, it, things get tricky. So I saw an ad the other day. Kim Kardashian was the spokesmodel for getting a, a complete MRI head to toe. Well, <laughs> first of all, that seems weird. <laughs> she doesn't need that. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't need that. <laughs> so the, the issues of overdiagnosis and overtreatment and the absence of disease are real. So it, it is seductive to say, okay, you need to be screened to make sure you don't have cancer or you don't have heart disease or you don't have something. It is actually super hard to show that you're helping people. So what tests do we know help people? We know that pap smears help with detection of cervical cancer. We know that colonoscopy, fantastic test to rule out colon cancer. We know that in patients who have smoked, that a special spiral x-rays, chest CTs, can diagnose lung cancer, and that helps people. Laura Esserman at UCSF is doing some very novel studies to ask the question, does everybody need a mammogram? And when they have a mammogram, how often and who and everything else, I could see mammograms becoming a precision test or prostate cancer screening being more precise. So it is both extremely difficult to prove that your screening test helps patients and also very, um, very challenging to say how often should you get it? What should be the, the remedy? I think of this really simply. Um, I think some of the tests I mentioned are effective because if you find it, you can just excise it, right? We have not had any tests to screen for pancreatic cancer and screening for ovarian cancer is kind of iffy. Part of it is if you had pancreatic cancer, even if it's very small, you would have to screen a lot of people to find someone with a very tiny resectable, you know, that you could excise. So I have a healthy respect for how hard it is to do disease prevention through screening, through diagnostics. I hope we will get there, but I think there'll be a journey, like I say, from highly skeptical to for certain patients with certain risk factors to the broader population. And we've seen that happening with one of our clients, Exact Sciences, and the advent and trajectory with Cologuard. Right, exactly. And, and I think that the serious scientific pursuit of a regulatory pathway and that, that kind of... Um, increase in confidence you get as you do more studies and you get more data. That's what I, when people ask me, well, what do you think of this or that? I'd say, look at the data, ask questions about FDA, because FDA is tough, appropriately in this case, and be skeptical. You know, it's, if it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> you know, uh, ask questions. 
the old adage applies. Uh, Sue, since you put on the Wayback Machine uh, several minutes ago um, with the the mention of the 25-year anniversary with Herceptin, and we talked a lot about the future, but let's go, let's stay in the Wayback Machine for, for another moment. Can you take us back to that day, please, when you first got the data on Herceptin, which I've heard you, you know, for example, in a TED Talk, describe as a seminal, revolutionary, everything changed moment in oncology. Yeah, no, it's it, it, they, it's hard for me to explain how skeptical people were about Herceptin. There was such a long period of time where people thought antibodies were the magic bullet. Remember, the ma- well, the magic bullet was a dud. Uh, we had murine mouse antibodies and they weren't working and companies were going out of business. And so there was just enormous skepticism about Herceptin. So much so that we couldn't enroll the trials. That's, I mean, I don't think people understand that we, the Steve Shack and uh, Hank Fuchs, two of the clinical scientists at Genentech had worked on Pulmazine. And these were incredibly aggressive, energetic, smart docs. And they actually worked with people who were experts in PR to say, we need to publicize these trials because if we can't get anybody in the trial, we are, you know, this is going to be a huge problem. So it was, my opinion was, this is going to be a disaster. Like (laughs) I, I was so nervous and so anxious. So step one was getting the trial enrolled, which was no small feat. And then step two was the unblinding. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this is like so risky. No one expects it. It's so difficult. So I was in one of the buildings, one of the original buildings, the clinical building at Genentech. And Steve Schack was a clinical scientist then who went on to go to genomic health later. Um, and Steve came in my office and he said, we, we have the study results. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, this is terrifying. And he said, the study's positive. And we went over the results and I was so excited. I was so excited. So Steve leaves my office and I go to the phone and I call up Bart Levinson. Then the CEO. And he's down the hill. He was the CEO of Genentech. And and by the way, had worked on oncogenes with Mike Bishop that led to her too. So like he was all over this. So Art's down towards the the bay um, in another building uh, where his office was. And I called him and I said, Art, we've got the results. He said, oh, you cannot tell me the results over the phone. (laughs) And come down here. So I hang up the phone and I peel out of my office. And of course, this is one of the mothers of all material events. So I can't talk to anybody. I got to get my, you know, game face on. And I tear down the, what's now DNA way, run down the street, run into, up the stairs, run into Art's office. And I realized I didn't bring any paper. <laughs> I had nothing. So I, I go up to Art's whiteboard and I drew up the Kaplan-Meyer curve. <laughs> Like I drew the cap of Meyer and estimated that and the p-value and the was like, and it was, I still remember him sitting at the table and me standing there drawing the cap of Meyer curve of Herceptin in women with metastatic breast cancer and thinking, this is like the best thing ever. 
And the thought that there were, you know, we had a lottery for uh, Herceptin after that, because the, you know, the old thing that we would often say, patients are waiting, patients were waiting. Women with HER2 positive cancer had nothing, nothing, nothing. And what this meant for them and how much it was going to change, you know, a quarter of women with breast cancer now have something. Yeah, the patients came and chained themselves to our fence. I remember them coming <laughs> down to campus. I mean, it was a, a lot to manage. It was, uh, And I do remember the first trials were not promising and, you know, you persevered. I remember you saying, though, Sue, you, you, you said the targeted cancer therapy like this would turn cancer into a chronic disease. And I, I wonder if you feel, you know, have we done that? We certainly have in certain cancers, right? I would say that's true. Yeah, that was one of my more um, mild things, predictions at the time. I was pretty exuberant. <laughs> my, my other prediction was this would be the way we would treat every cancer patient. We'd have a diagnostic and a therapeutic, um, and it's taken a while. It's taken a while. But on the chronic disease front, there's two great examples. One is uh, HER2-positive breast cancer, where patients will go for very long periods of time on an anti-HER2 therapy. And even if it stops working, they'll go on another anti-HER2 therapy. It's pretty remarkable how long the benefit of uh, knocking down HER2 lasts and how well the patients do. And the other example is lymphoma with rituxan. We did not understand at the outset how much lymphoma would turn into a chronic disease with treatments, rituxan and other treatments like that, that target CD20. Yeah. And I think that's turned into a drug that, I mean, I remember that came in the house when you were around the time you joined Genentech. I was there as well at that moment. And I don't think anyone saw what that would become. I mean, it is, you know, no. foundational medicine. You know, the, the, I mentioned the thing about murine antibodies. There's so many things about rituxan that teach us that CD20 is a nearly perfect cancer target. One of the things that teaches us that is that you can treat lymphoma patients with rituxan. It's a chimera. It's actually not humanized. It's got pretty big murine part of that antibody, and yet the patients tolerate it actually very well, very and well, you can yeah. give it repeatedly. The other thing is using rituxan and other anti-CD20s for rheumatoid arthritis and MS, which again, the dogma was those are T-cell driven diseases and it's a B-cell active agent. So one of the things that I think rituxan epitomizes is antibodies are precise, which is one of the reasons I love antibodies. They're very precise in their safety and their efficacy, both. So you can learn about biology when, you know, people use knockout mice. Using antibodies in humans for treatment is the human homologue of a knockout mouse. <laughs> you learn a lot. You do. And I mean, all this innovation, so important. I think I wanted to pivot to something that's super current right now. Just announced uh, the first 10 medicines to be subject to the Medicare price negotiations through the Inflation Reduction Act. I know you're uh, a member of the President Biden's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology with the goal of, you know, how can we guarantee the fruits of all this great innovation are getting to as many Americans as we can get them to and maybe the world. What are your thoughts about 
this Inflation Reduction Act evolution, I, I'm sure we all saw it coming. It's taken a long time to happen. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts about this recent announcement and where it goes from here. And that some have called to the Innovation Reduction Act, <laughs> not the Inflation Reduction Act. So I have to say, I've been reading today about this, and I'm of two minds. I was both in industry and in academia for a long time before I went to Gates Foundation. And I know that money is the mother's milk of science. You can't have great people. You can't do great science. You can't have the stamina to stick to something like a rituxan or septin that we just talked about or any of these other or mRNA without money. So great innovation in life sciences is not turn the crank. It's time consuming, it's risky, and it's expensive. And I want there to be a commitment to R&D. Um, I also would say that it's evidence of American exceptionalism. The, uh, the USA does a great job on pharma biotech diagnostics. I think people like me, people like us, should think about the Inflation Reduction Act as evidence of how strongly people feel about healthcare costs, how much the nation is worried about healthcare costs and is looking to politicians and other leaders to manage healthcare costs. And so it's not just healthcare costs, it's also healthcare costs with an aging population. So costs for things like Medicare. So I understand where this comes from and I understand what the IRA is trying to do. So I'm looking at these 10 drugs and thinking about what will happen now uh, between now and 2026. So I have a number of different worries. I mean, one worry is that people will invest less in life sciences because they're worried about things like this. That would be a bad outcome. My other worry is distortions. Like the, I think um, Scott Gottlieb talked about that he didn't predict that these 10 would be on the list. And Scott's also on Pfizer's board, I should say. But if it's not predictable how you're on the list or not on the list, that's a problem because you want anything that's a federal um, mandate to be predictable. But the thing I worry about most is this thing with the small molecules and, and large molecules. I don't fully understand it. And I don't want pharma and biotech to be scared away from small molecules because small molecules can be swallowed. They're cheaper. They can be made generic very quickly. So if I'm trying to contain costs and increased access, I want more small and less big, you know? So, I mean, I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm, I think there needs to be a lot of attention to what's the problem we're trying to solve and are we using the best tools to solve that problem, which is costs. Not to mention, Sue, the convenience factor involved with pills yeah. versus having to disrupt your life, drive however long to an infusion center, spend however many hours at an infusion center, <laughs> drive back to your home versus just walking into your bathroom, opening up the medicine chest, getting a glass of water and swallowing a pill. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. And, and now there are a lot of self-delivered, you know, that's in the world of Embril, which is self-administered or insulin, which is self-administered. The companies have done a great job of, of moving to easier ways of accessing parenteral drugs of, of the injectables. But again, the I remember when I was in practice, 
in oncology, the Medicare reimbursed doing labs and they would change the way they reimbursed and every lab in town would change the way they ordered labs. <laughs> like that, I mean, that if Medicare does something, everybody changes how they behave. And so it's really super important to understand the unintended consequences. So is part of the underlying issue though, Sue, that there is a lack of knowledge around the differences between a large molecule and a small molecule and a lack of understanding that even a small molecule can be extremely complex. That just because it's a biologic, that doesn't mean that it's exponentially harder, longer, more investment to discover and develop. The same can be said for small molecules. And is there an onus on people like you and us and all sorts of people throughout the life sciences to just do a better job of talking about what goes into the discovery and the making of medicine, whether it's small or big? No, no, that's so well said, Mike. So I would just add to what you said. What's interesting is I've always thought that the most challenging product development to do is chronic disease. You know, things like inflammation, rheumatoid arthritis. And so you treat someone for a very, very long time. And so your ability to predict toxicity is so limited. And people are on those drugs for such a long time. Many of those are small molecules. So I think there are more challenging and less challenging product development paths, but I don't bend them by small and large. <laughs> you know, I bend them by complexity and by, it, we, we were really interested at Gates Foundation and actually there's been a recent um, approval at Pfizer of a um, RSV vaccine for pregnant women. Well, people steered clear of pregnant women for anything in a study for a long time because you thought, okay, if if there's an adverse event, I'm going to be blamed. Or, you know, God forbid there's an adverse event in a pregnant woman. So I do think that there's degrees of difficulty with product development, degrees of length of time of product development that make things harder. Um, but again, that that's this distortion of using exclusivity by size of molecule. They probably saw something, and I'd like to understand a little better what it was, probably saw something in their giant Medicare database that said to them that that was a good move because, you know, people did this for a reason. I, I don't know exactly what the reason must have been. Interesting. Well, you know, you're on the board of a new type of, or at least a new type of manufacturing group, you know, Resilience, that I'm an investor in, so for full disclosure... You know, I, I, we've certainly done work with them as well in, in our time in communications. I think that is a good place to get people educated, you know, about how things are made and what goes into that. And the more the public trusts and understands that, the better. So I wonder, is that why you got involved in that one, Sue? That was an interesting one to get involved in. But I do remember... Yeah. When we were at Genentech, I remember you and Stephen and many going down and really setting the rules of manufacturing it for antibodies. And it was the beginning of everything. So nobody really knew how to do this stuff. Are we there again? Well, my, my temporary assignment at Genentech was to manage manufacturing in addition to my other activities. That lasted four and a half years. So. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> People don't know that. So because of that, my terrific friend, Pat Yang, who ran manufacturing, who is a serious manufacturing leader um, and is vice chair at National Resilience, got me involved at National Resilience. So there's several people involved who I have a lot of respect for. And National Resilience is responding to a lot of companies saying, look, rate limiting for us with cell therapy, gene therapy, some of these newer therapies is production. We can't make it or we can't get that done. And if you've got a, a large pipeline and you've got a, a something that's small in R and D it's very hard to do that as a big company. And so forming this network of reliable biomanufacturing sites, and that actually is one of the topics of PCAST, the, the President's Council of Advisors, put out a report on biomanufacturing because it's such an important asset. And during the pandemic, globally, people recognize if you can't make your own vaccines or your own medicines, you are in a heap of trouble when uh, bad things happen. So I think it's a very important part of the trust people have in the supply chain and the trust they have if they're going to enroll people in trials that they'll be able to supply a drug. Well, and Rob Califf's recently been quoted talking about how he's become an expert or had to become an expert at supply chain because of the drug shortages that we've seen. So do you think that will be an increasing issue, problem as we go forward? It's a huge issue and it has been an issue. It's one of the things that's interesting. We were talking about the cost of drugs. Ironically, the cost of some generics in the U.S. is so low that it's a loss leader for the companies. And by the way, those same generics are higher costs in Europe, (laughs) which is weird. Um, but, But we have to make sure that, and I think there's a move afoot to try and have a not-for-profit that makes generic products because it it can't be that we ask a um, publicly traded company to lose money by producing a generic drug, which is what's been happening. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And resilience isn't just focused on making therapies for companies, Sue. They're also focused on doing it for academic researchers as well in very, very small amounts. That's right. So they've made a lot of alliances across the U.S. with universities. And I think it's particularly exciting for, I know at UCSF and at Harvard and just you go all across the U.S., these academic researchers want to do a little bit more translational work than was kind of de rigueur a decade or two ago. And once they do, they need to have somebody make it. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, and you don't find that, you know, down the hall in your lab. Exactly. And they're making it, they have to make it because you can't do CAR T and cell unless you can do it on campus, right? I mean, that's really what's yep. going on. So we're going to see, you know, treatment paradigms change yet again based on this. I think that's really something to look at. I mean, you're hearing and seeing that more and more. I mean, and why? You know, what I think is going to be important, and this is, um, it kind of gets back to something we, I really learned on Rituxan. So Ron Levy, who was like one of the fathers of Rituxan at Stanford, he originally wanted to make bespoke antibodies for each patient. He thought that the activity and, and the efficacy, the help for lymphoma would be better if you made a antibody for each patient. 
And two things happened. One is he was talked out of that happily. But secondly, for a good reason, which is you didn't need your own special antibody made for you. You know, regular old Rituxan worked really, really well. I think in some ways, CAR-T, and I know people are looking at aloe and auto and thinking about this. I think it's hard to scale something that's technically incredibly complex one patient at a time. It's like giving a bone marrow transplant to everybody with some cancer. Now you can do that and it's done effectively at centers across the US, but it's not done in thousands of people. You know, it's a small scale treatment. So I think CAR-T's future is going to rely on a little bit less, a little easier technical um, solution, which if something cures patients, it'll be figured out. Yeah, it will be. And that's why I have a lot, I guess I'm a, more of an optimist when it comes to the inflation reduction, like talk about us. Like I'd rather you're talking about us. I'm, I'm rather so that we can get into the dialogue. As long as the dialogue's there, do you think the people in DC can get it? I mean, oh yeah, no, I think people are going to get it. You know, I mean, these representatives and, you know, the one thing I wanted to hit on was just the the sort of conspiracy theorists and, uh, you know, debunkers of science. And, you know, we deal with this with our friend and colleague, um, colleagues at NIH, you know, that, come on, you know, we're doing good science. What do you think we have to do there to set the record more straight? So I, I think that there's, there are people who are making money or fame from being anti-science. I think we need to stay the course. I don't think we should be too distracted. We should be extremely thoughtful. And, you know, I don't think it's like fight fire with fire. I think it is. I always feel like if I'm nerdy, I'm going to stay nerdy. Like if that, if that makes you mad, sorry. (laughs) Patients deserve for us to be thoughtful and steady Eddie um, and data driven. I think it's a really interesting thing to note how many anti-vax people took the COVID vaccine and had their families take the COVID vaccine. Those are the kinds of data I don't mind talking about. You know, that for me is a data-driven discussion. There's a really interesting literature, much more in the climate change literature, that um, you can inoculate, which is ironic, people against fake climate information If you tell them ahead of time, you know, they're going to tell you this. It's not true. If I talked to a mom and said, you know, measles, like if if you want your child to die, it's going to be a measles. Like it's a really horrible disease. You don't want your kid to get measles. And measles vaccine has been used in millions of children. I've seen them from Nigeria to Malawi. Not a problem. This is a great vaccine. And I want your child to get that. So if somebody comes and tells you a story, you know better. So that kind of prevention of misinformation with good information, including what people will say who are using misinformation, is very effective, very hard to scale. But it gives me some confidence that we can do a better job on the communication front of getting ahead better than we did in COVID of some of the misinformation. So a plug, a plug, because we work with, I think you know Reed and He's started something called the Coalition for Trust in Health and Science, and we're helping him, and I've been helping right. him through the whole uh, vaccine thing. And I, I like how you've put it. Like, you know, we're just going to be nerds, and we're just going to, you know, <laughs> tell you the way it is. And 
these are the facts. And I, I mean, look, I, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and a lot of my friends question this, right. And have lots of questions around it. And I just say, well, here's the facts as I know them, you mm-hmm. know, and like you said, if you want to survive these diseases or issues, you got to do these things. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. no, there's, there's some kind of magical thinking involved in some of what's gone on, but I, I think stay the course and, and really also not get mad at people but be patient and just keep giving answers. That might be the hardest thing <laughs> right there. That's the hardest challenge. Yeah. I'd like to to switch topics to to come back to your colorful story about the Herceptin data. And you talked about what a huge skeptic you were and how blown away you were by the fact that it was even a positive study. So fast forward, you over time, and not that much time, earn a stellar reputation in biopharma for being expert at properly powering clinical trials, to set them up, in other words, with the highest chances of success and of being positive studies. But today, Sue, as we all know, clinical trials are changing in so many ways and not just in oncology. And in particular, I'd like to hear your thoughts around how you think that companies like Roche Genentech, like Pfizer, et cetera, can solve this problem of clinical trial diversity and greater representation of the patient population or patient populations, plural, that are most affected by the particular disease or type of tumor that you're studying. Yeah. So it's such an important question. First of all, I feel so fortunate at Genentech that I worked with some of the best biostatisticians on earth. I mean, I'm still friends with uh, many of them and they were just fantastic. So if I did anything right, it was to take their advice. (laughs) And uh, And it was good advice and I followed it. Your question about diversity is so important. And let me tell you something that I I just co-chaired this public health report for President Biden uh, for PCAST. So Lisa Cooper and I co-chaired the, the report and she's at Hopkins and her specialty is care for the underserved. That's her uh, expertise. And so I learned a lot working with Lisa and working and interviewing people and trying to get this right for the public health thing. And it it has a lot of overlap with how I would think about clinical trials. So the first essential thing is, it's like if you have a friend and you think they're a friend, but you haven't seen them in years and years. And the first thing they do is ask you for money. It's like, I don't know. I'm not sure if that is even a friend. So let's say I'm going to do a clinical trial and there's uh, an ethnic group that is much more prone to that cancer than other people. But those people on those clinics in that community have never seen me before. They don't know me. They don't trust me, nor have I given them any reason to trust me. So one of the things I think is absolutely essential is to understand that trust comes from relationships. And, you know, when you're a clinical person at a drug company, you don't think about relationships as much as you should. But that kind of relationship uh, driven interaction, that 
interaction with the local clinics, making sure they have what they need to be successful in doing clinical trials because it's not taught in medical school and to go where people are and interact with them and to have a diverse company. And you cannot do clinical trials in diverse populations if everybody at the company looks the same way. So I think it is also, and I learned this on Herceptin, humility is an essential thing. I mean, when uh, Fran Visco came to Genentech and people chained themselves to the fences and the breast cancer patients decided that they were going to use ACT UP tactics, the first thing I thought is, hey, I'm the oncologist. (laughs) And the second thing I thought is, well, that's not going to go very far. So you sit down and you listen. And it's always like that to get patients involved, to have the ability to have advisory groups that are of the community. And it's not that hard, but it feels like you feel vulnerable. Like if you give me advice and I don't take it, we'll be okay. You can be mad at me. You can make me look silly. Um, But I think it's, you know, what I tell people is relax and go with it. And you're going to learn a lot from that patient or patient advocate or that community member who tells you, look, we don't do things that way. You know, it's, and there's a kind of a method to doing that, that people who are good at it, like community health workers, vaccinators, people like that know how to do, but it takes willingness to be vulnerable and dampening down your bossy gene. (laughs) (laughs) And we're seeing, we're seeing so many companies that are doing that, that are really trying to change the way that they connect with patients and patient groups. But you brought up a moment ago, Sue, that the company needs to be diverse as well. So you were one of the first prominent women in the biotech C-suite and senior level management. Today, many years later, there's just one female CEO of a major global pharmaceutical company. Oh, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) What needs to be done, not just to get more women up at the senior level and on boards of directors, but also people of color, LGBTQ plus. And then as a side note, would you ever come back? So the, the, um, I think what needs to be done is kind of complicated, but um, I will tell you what I've seen that makes a difference that what I've observed, there's four women on Pfizer's board of directors. That's a really great thing. So when their executive team comes and presents to the board, they see more women than you typically would in a a pharma boardroom. So I think that really matters. Having the opportunity for women who are kind of coming up through the ranks to interact with more senior women really helps. So just having the ability to connect uh, with others, I think, helps a lot. The, The thing that I think is harder than then probably I appreciated when I was at Genentech, traveling, you know, global travel is really hard if you're a mom. It's just super hard. It's hard if you're a dad too, but it's really hard and feels limiting to some women. So they don't take on assignments that have a lot of global travel or, you know, could bring them into those. Um, Working late is also hard for people who are moms. 
So I think it's important to understand that people may need some, not uh, changes, but more flexibility. And I don't think people often, especially being the only woman, you don't ask for it because you feel like, you know, it, it kind of is weak or something like that. So I think that's extremely important. And the last thing I'll say is it is so important to have, and I would say this about any group, whether it's women, people of color, LGBT plus, the having someone champion folks who aren't like, you know, the, the, the CEO, <laughs> in this case, it's often the CEO, matters so much. It matters so much. I got really lucky because the first champion I had was my dad. He was like, oh my God, you're good at math and you can do this and that'll be, you'll be great. And, you know, like I just won the lottery on my dad thinking that any of us could do anything. And then Art was such a champion. Like my favorite conversation with Art would be, um, I'd like you to take on this. And I'd be like, I, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Say, well, you'll figure it out. And if you have questions, call me. <laughs> like, who does that? He Jim Weiss had- does that. Jim Weiss does that. Yeah. <laughs> I learned it from them. That's, I learned from these guys. It's so like, yeah. good. Yeah. That that sense of pushing you, I think, is is actually really underrated. And no, I'm I'm very happy with what I'm doing now. I'm not uh, planning a career change. <laughs> You're not going to follow Chris V. Bacher or Josh Boger? No. Nope. Doesn't sound like it. She shook her head no, for those of you who are listening. Yeah. That's a no, yeah. Have you gotten to, so I know we both have places in Tahoe. Have you gotten there at all this summer? Are you up there? Have you seen the bears all over the place? I have, I'm at Donner Lake and I had, uh, I think I told Mike this, a few bear encounters. Um, It was funny because we were up there uh, a couple days ago and my husband was on his bike and I was running and I was running back and he came up on the bike and he said, did you see that bear? <laughs> I thought happily no. <laughs> There's a lot of bears up there this year. A lot. Yeah, my wife and I were walking up there recently and saw a couple. Now I've been getting pictures from everyone. There really are a lot. I'm not sure yeah. why. I figure I'm kind of scrawny, so maybe they'll go after somebody with a little more meat. <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. Um <laughs> So look, you know, it's good to close on on fun stuff. Um, what what's your newest hobby outside of work these days? Well, the the one that's consumed me since the pandemic started is running. I was a treadmill early morning runner when I was at Genentech and UCSF and Gates Foundation. And now that I don't have to get to work and commute so early in the morning, I go outside on the wonderful Iron Horse Trail in East Bay. And I so enjoy it. I'm I'm an outdoor runner. That's great. All right. So we won't find you in one of Mike's, you know, um, spin classes. Bicycle. Yeah. yeah, your spin classes. No, I'll go indoors if the weather's really bad. But otherwise, I'm outdoors, which is the best ever. So do you run with music or not? I listen to podcasts. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? Um, This one. <laughs> This one, besides this one, uh, The Daily. Nice. Good to know that. Um, Before we sign off, I think, Sue, everyone would love to hear about this because we talked about it, you know, relative to women CEOs, and I play a role as an advisor, the Healthcare Women's Business Association. 
Yeah. Any advice for people, given all the diversity of roles in your career and the things that you did and the risks you took, just as a closing, any thoughts for people about how they should do things in this more new, that's a different environment, clearly? Yeah. And Sue, what I find so remarkable is how you, you almost change disciplines. You go from physician to executive to academic and chancellor at UCSF. And then, oh, now I'm going to be the leader of the world's largest public health organization. <laughs> um, so you're in some might see that as a reinvention, but for you, it seemed like a natural evolution. Yeah, I would, I would say a few things. First of all, and this is number one on the list by far, pay attention to home. So many people who I have worked with, things go awry at home and then the wheels come off. You know, it's so hard and I feel so bad for them. So just valuing home and making sure that home comes first is really, really important. Nothing will replace family. You know, that's my motto. Nothing steps in the shoes of family. So make sure that that's number one. But the second thing is that the thing that I am so grateful for is how much I enjoy work. And I I think it's just because I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy how smart they are and how much I get to learn from them. And I think it sets up a virtuous circle of if you really enjoy people and enjoy learning from them, that shows so much respect that they feel good about that. You know, but you're not doing it to have them feel good. You're doing it to learn from them and and enjoy it. And I think that's, I like learning. I like, I don't mind going into a place where I'm not the smartest person. Like I was laughing when I talked to Bill Gates in one of our earliest conversations. I told him I reread the medical textbook on polio because I hadn't thought about polio for a long time. <laughs> you know? So just, I think it's really fun to think I'm this age and I'm reading. You know, I'm I'm learning new things and I get to uh, be around people who I respect. So I think that, again, enjoying learning and pushing yourself to get smarter and learn more, underrated. Awesome. Well, we'll wrap it there. Thanks for your time. This was this hour flew by and glad to be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Perceptin results with you. I mean, I feel akin and all the names you're talking about i see i still see some of those people (laughs) a lot um they'll show up on this podcast i'm sure so thanks for your time absolutely nice to talk to you guys i enjoyed it great to have you want more episodes of the real chemistry podcast subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts we post a new episode every thursday visit realchemistry.com for more info